And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. AI, ML, artificial intelligence, machine learning, What's the limits of it? You know, a lot of people are talking about how it's going to either ruin the world or make the world a greater place. I don't know if either one are true. We're going to get into that today in depth. And before we do that, today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by Equip Bid Auctions, your Midwest online auction marketplace to buy and sell stuff. Equip Bid provides dedicated support to affiliates in Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and Iowa. And you can join the team and sell everything from heavy machinery to home goods, vehicles, boats, restaurant, kitchen equipment, tractors, patio furniture, a whole lot of stuff. It's equip-bid.me forward slash startup. Man, that's a lot to remember. So why don't you just scroll on down to the show notes and click the link there. Once again, there's a link for equip bid. With me today, I've got David Magerman, and he is the managing partner and CTO at Differential Ventures. That's a venture capital fund management operation in New York, New York. You can also, in the show notes, find a link for differential.vc. David, welcome to Startup Hustle. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, you know, I like to start my conversations, and you know, we we've got a lot to unpack here. AI, ML, all in one episode. Uh, what the limits are, but you know, let's let's get a little bit about your backstory, and I'd also like to uh, hear a little bit about what you guys are doing at Differential. Sure. Um, so I actually started out as a computer scientist. I got a PhD from Stanford back in the uh, early '90s, and my focus was on AI and machine learning, data-driven approaches to solving the natural language. Uh, parsing problem, part of the uh, you know speech recognition problem, and um, I was very much focused on academia and uh, looking to become a professor. Uh, but you know, faculty jobs were hard to get back then. Didn't get my my first choice, and ended up going into this uh, new thing called a quantitative hedge fund, which ended up using some of the same engineering um, and software development skills as speech recognition did, and ended up spending twenty years doing quantitative trading, building software systems. And particularly using data science and AI and machine learning to solve a real world problem, you know, to predict price movements in financial markets and also to come up with optimal portfolios for uh, deploying those models and making money off of them. And uh, then when I left Renaissance, this is Renaissance Technologies, the company I work for, when I left there in 2017, I looked at the landscape of where the industry was um, using AI and I found that um, the, the AI community was doing what it's done since the history of, of, uh, of, of the industry, which is taking technology that mimicked human intelligence and promising the singularity that machines were going to become sentient and like humans and solve all the world's problems without people involved. And I thought it was a great time for me to get involved in uh, trying to influence founders, startups, early stage companies that were trying to use AI 
um, because I've always felt that there's a ceiling to the, the performance, the power of AI. And if you use the technology within the scope of what it's good at, you can get a lot of value out of it. But if you presume it's going to be more powerful than it actually is, you're inevitably going to lead your company and your customers and your employees down, down a bad path. So um, my partner, Nick uh, Adams, and I founded Differential Ventures, Ventures to uh, try to uh, help founders who are starting up companies in this uh, kind of applied AI, data science, machine learning space, and try to guide them to come up with use cases and applications that were within the scope of the power of the tools so they could be successful with their businesses. So once again, there's a link for differential.vc in the show notes. So let's go, let's turn the Wayback Machine on here and go back to, you know, you're talking about, you know, working at Stanford and, you know, this is, that's 25 plus years ago at this point, not to, not to put an age on ourselves, but I was, I, I am equally experienced. <laughs> Um, in life, let's put it that way. So, you know, I, I feel like the outlook on AI and ML at that point, you know, like, and well, there's still people that are freaked out about what it can do. But, you know, when you look back at like 25, 30 years ago, this is kind of the birth of a lot of this stuff, I want to say, or it's, it's the very, uh, it's the Wild West or or the the genesis of a lot of this. How has the overall outlook of the capability of AI and, and machine learning evolved or changed over that you know quarter of a century? It's funny you use the word genesis, given that was the uh, the ogre machine in the one of the latest Terminator movies. Um, oh, was yeah. Um, but uh, you know, like AI has had this history of uh, mimicking human intelligence, as I said. Uh, back in the in the I think the late sixties, early seventies, there was this um, series of programs. One of them was called Eliza, which was a, a psychotherapist application, like a chatbot, and it gave the impression that it was um, you know interacting as a human being. And of course, it was just a bunch of little little hacks and scripts and and pattern matching um, that had no intelligence whatsoever. Um, and it led to the development of what they call the Turing test, which is this test that Alan Turing came up with that was if you had a a, um, you know, behind the a screen, if you had either a human or a computer, could a human interacting with one or the other differentiate between the two? Could you have a computer program that fooled a human to thinking they were a human? And I mean, that's kind of been the, uh, the litmus test for AIs along, along the way, but it's, it's um, missing the point that ultimately the technologies we're using now for doing machine learning are somewhat akin to memorization. They're memorizing data, they're counting things, they're computing probability statistics, they're doing some, some uh, extrapolation of the data, but fundamentally it's learning from example and then regurgitating responses related to the, the patterns that it's seen. And that can only get you so far. Like human intelligence, I don't think it's, it's simply, you know, pattern matching and regurgitation of memory. So, um, you know, you, you can... The, more, the deeper the deeper repositories of knowledge you can encode in an AI system. So we have these things called deep learning models now. Deep learning means that they have these deep networks of hidden states that represent more and more information from the training data. So you know we used to have uh, neural networks that had like dozens of states or hundreds of states. Now we have neural networks with billions of states. You know trying to mimic the human brain, but fundamentally they're just kind of memorizing data. So if you've ever heard of GPT three this NLP chatbot that, or, you know, chatting, you know, natural language processing system um, that allows you to do a lot of 
um, understanding problems, solve a lot of understanding problems in NLP. Um, it's basically just remembering an enormous amount of data. And then if you make, ask it a question, it looks back and it's effectively looked back in its history of all the things it's seen that look like the question you're asking and then take the kind of average best response um, based on its data. And again, that's not the way human beings, you know, do innovative thinking. So, you know, the, the, uh, where, we, where we've come today is just an extension of where we've always been, which is taking systems that just remember things and trying to make them look like they're doing intelligent reasoning, but they're really not. So you, you, you talked about the training model and yeah, you know, I've had conversations on this show with different people about, you know, AI and ML. And, and when we talk about training, it does requ require a human to at some point say, Hey, this is right. This is wrong in certain cases. Now, I th like if you're training AI to play go, you know, or, or chess or something like that. I think that that's a little more straightforward about this is a winning or a losing move, but how do you go about training AI and ML? Cause like your impression of what might be the right course of action compared to mine could be very different. Is it, am, am I right with that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there are different kinds of learning um, methodologies. There's supervised learning, which is like what you're saying, where you give you, you give it some data and you give it an answer and you say whether the answer is right or wrong and you label all the answers with some categories, and then you train models to predict those categories on new cases. That's a purely supervised model, and that's really useful in a domain where you know the answer. If there's like, you know, if there's, you're taking images and you have 10 categories you want to say is one of the 10 categories, then supervised learning is a, is a great way to go. But if you're doing something like, let's say, you're talking about learning, you learning to play Go, when there are so many possible moves, it's just you know, computationally impossible to compute all the moves in a game like Go or chess, there there's unsupervised learning methods and semi-supervised learning methods where either you just let the game, you let the games play out randomly and eventually they lead to positive or negative outcomes. And then you have what's, sometimes what's called reinforcement learning where you take the, the, the choices that led to good outcomes and you reinforce them and you downweight the ones that led to bad outcomes. And eventually you hope that the models converge on um, models that can that can generate positive outcomes as opposed to negative ones. Um, so those are purely unsupervised learning. And then you have semi-supervised learning where you might have a human in the loop occasionally weighing in on whether, uh, you know, guiding the learning. So it might do some, some, un some unsupervised learning and then a human will, will take a snapshot and say, okay, let's downweight these outcomes and upweight these outcomes and then continue the learning. And there's lots of research going on on semi-supervised learning, because that's a way of getting the best of both worlds, where you don't, you're not biased by human intuition, because human intuition is limited. Um, you know, one of the best reasons to do machine learning is because machines will think of things that humans won't, but you still have the, the limitations that they're dumb, and you want to add some intelligence to it, so that hybrid approach of semi-supervised learning can be really powerful. So if we discuss the limits of just AI and ML in general, I mean, is the is our models that rely heavily on supervised learning do, do they become immediately limited? Um, well, they're only they're limited in the sense that there's um, a cost to generating the training data. Um, so if you if you have to annotate all your data um, for the supervised learning process, first of all, that means you're coming up with the categories that you're labeling, which you know people are not always good, as you said, 
your opinion of what's right is different from my opinion of what's right. And that comes true for ontologies as well, that if, if I'm coming up with a system of annotating, you know, back, back in the uh, 90s, um, late 80s, early 90s, um, I was a part of this pen tree bank project where we were supposed to be labeling like millions of words of data with grammatical structure. So like saying what the part of speech each word was, what the noun phrases were, what the verb phrases, prepositional phrases, and so on. And it turns out that people have different opinions about what the structure of a sentence is. Sometimes sentences can be ambiguous, but also some people have different opinions even about what the labels are for sentence structure. And so you had, so when you have someone coming up with an ontology, a labeling scheme, that's already limiting yourself to that decision-making. So if you're doing supervised learning, you're starting out with the limitations of whatever labeling scheme the person who came up with the labeling scheme put into it. And whereas if you're doing something, something self-organized, there's um, information theoretic clustering algorithms, which can come up with categories that humans would never think of, but which actually represent the data better than the, the brittle categories that one creates. And in addition, as data grows, as you, you know, we've seen with language usage, like if you look at a, a, a Twitter feed, uh, the language that people use today versus what people were using 30 years ago is very different. So if you r limit yourself to grammatical structure as defined in like 1980, um, you wouldn't be able to analyze most of what goes on on Twitter today. So there's definitely like a, a tension between the rigidity and structure of supervised learning versus the flexibility and fluidity of unsupervised learning. But if you're solving a problem with clearly defined semantics, if you know the answer, let's say you have, um, you know, you're trying to identify, like from an image, you're trying to identify uh, a circuit board and say what, 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 it, what, it, what it contains, then there is an answer. And there are specific components that, that the circuit board is made up of. And you don't have to worry about the labeling problem because the labels are, are predefined. And so in that case, a supervised learning situation is gonna be much better than unsupervised. Whereas if you're looking at something more like trying to determine sentiments in, uh, in a Twitter feed to inform investing decisions, well then really a supervised process is probably gonna be very limiting because you, like in your opinion of sentiment versus my opinion of sentiment might be very different and you want something that's going to be more generated by the data. You know, as the author of three books during the final editing process, I realized, you know, you would think that the, that the English language was quite defined and it was unbelievable how much uh, you talk about sentiment or different opinions people had, like, for example, and there are things like, like the Oxford comma, for example, like people legitimately get upset about that. They're like, oh my God, I can't believe you would put that comma before and, and they get really upset about it. Now, technically, grammatically, it's correct either way. But so when you, how do you, how do you train a machine to get past that kind of, that kind of stuff? And really like for real people, like calm down about the Oxford comma. It's right. right. It's right either way. Well, that point had a really important <laughs> issue with the bridge between academia and, and the real world, which is that you know, academic research tends to focus on problems that no one in the world ever needs solved. You know, whether you have- Like that one. Right, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, so the, the first thing is finding problems that actually need to be solved by real businesses. And then figuring out if there are machine learning, data-driven, AI-based solutions that can actually do better than traditional software. And the answer to that is, in a lot of cases, no. Um, a lot of cases, traditional software does really well, and maybe data-driven AI adds maybe 5 or 10% of performance improvement on top of it. But if you try to throw away the software and do something completely machine learning-based, 
you'll get a really interesting system that'll do interesting things, but it might not solve the problem nearly as well as a traditional software solution. So when it comes to, you know, when I think about computing power and just all that, and, you know, 20, here we, let, we once again, jumping into that Wayback machine, I mean, how much, how much more difficult was it to run AI and machine learning models with limited computing power that we had 25 years ago? It's like, I mean, that my iPhone that's in my pocket right now is way more powerful than the computer I had 24, 25 years ago. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great observation. And that actually was the main reason why I left academia, because I was actually doing my, my thesis research at IBM Research um, on, we were working on machine translation, speech recognition, and natural language processing. And um, we did these competitions competing against labs um, around the world um, every, every year or so. And we had to train our big models for these competitions. And in the month before uh, these competitions, we would have to like steal time on hundreds of computers all around IBM research, some of which we weren't really supposed to be on, just to be able to, to terraform the environment to create enough computing power to run for weeks training our models so we could be ready to do the computations um, for these competitions. And you know, then management said to us, okay, can you fit um, your speech recognition models on a desktop? And like, here we are on hundreds of computers, massive computers around IBM, and they're saying squeeze it onto a desktop, which you know, now we're talking about squeezing it onto like a, a, you know, a cell phone um, or do it in the cloud. Um, it's you know, a different world. But back then we realized that the mathematical techniques we were using, first of all, there wasn't enough data to train them. And there certainly wasn't enough computing power to, uh, to process the data. And even the disk space itself for storing the data and the network uh, saturation that we generated by trying to access the data was really onerous. So, you know, a bunch of us at IBM left the field because we realized we were too early. And it turns out that when we fast forward 20 years and looked at what solutions were working um, to solve AI problems today, they were frankly the solutions that we rejected as as inadequate back in the 80s and 90s, neural networks were a failed approach to AI back in the 80s and 90s, specifically because there wasn't enough data to create the deep networks you needed to memorize enough information to make the models powerful. Um, so really, it, it is Moore's law um, and the, uh, the availability of the computing power and data and the internet that's enabled us to solve problems today that we had no hope of solving 20, 30 years ago. Is that data shared amongst people in the world on any level, or is it all in compartmentalized proprietary servers that IBM or whoever, like whatever company has? I mean, is there, is there any open source nature to all of this? Oh, there's a lot of open source data for doing general research, but the, the really powerful applications are based on proprietary data. So, you know, if you're going to be working in a particular domain as a startup, let's say, the first thing you need to do is develop a relationship with design partners that actually have data that they'll be willing to barter with you to let you use to build your models or can sell to you or sell access to you or whatever. But, you know, the, the, the open source data is by, by its nature not powerful enough or not uh, conclusive enough to convince, to convince you that you have an application that can work, that can sell, that can solve a real world problem because public data is by its nature not um, the same as the proprietary data that, that enterprises keep to themselves to do their core business functions. 
Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about that and 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 neural networks here in a moment. But as a reminder, today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Equipbed Auctions, an online marketplace dedicated to growing small auction businesses. They're solving problems and providing a fun re-commerce or liquidation shopping experience to valued bidders. Go check out their incredible offerings and sign up at equip-bid.me backslash. Actually, I think that's a forward slash startup. So there's a link for the sh- in the show notes for that. Now, you do not need AI or ML to sell your extra equipment at Equipbid. It's funny. We good little, nice little, nice little marketplace that's dedicated to helping business owners get rid of all the crap that we have stacked up. Um, and I'll tell you what, I've got a whole bunch of it myself. Talk about the extra things in our business. All right. So I first had my, I was first introduced like in depth in to like actually beginning to try to understand what a neural network was uh, through the show. And uh, there's a guy in Kansas City who's an uh, open uh, open CV or computer vision developer who his company makes all of the, all of the uh, technology that paint companies use in their app to help you understand what color it'll, you want your, your wall to be. And I was like, Oh man, that sounds pretty straightforward. You take a picture and it's going to cover the wall and the space is in green. And he's like, Oh man, you don't even know. And like, like, and I'm looking at now the listeners can't see our videos, but I'm looking at the, at the wall behind you and there's many shades of beige and Brown and that neural network, uh, the way that your eye, uh, your eyes and your brain began to see shadow, shades, depth, and everything. And I was like, oh my God, if this is the amount of complexity that it is involved in telling my wife what color my kid's playroom will look like, how are we going to figure out the rest of this? Now, you know, so, so when it comes to like a neural network is, you know, how are, can, can you try to break down and explain to listeners like what that is and how that kind of computer hive mind in many ways will will look at and decide and come up with data or output? Yeah, I mean, you know, neural networks are a way of encoding models, which are what we call nonlinear. So if a relationship is linear, so if you have like, you know, a certain input and that leads to a certain outcome, and if you have twice the input, it leads to twice the outcome, that's a linear model. And that's easy to represent with just traditional um, statistical models. Um, but when you have relationships which have nonlinear, nonlinear components to them, where if something reaches a certain threshold and suddenly it becomes much bigger, like if there's a, um, if, a, if a, just in, in sort of the world I used to work in stock prices, like if there was something where if a, if a stock price goes up a certain amount, then that's, you know, it's got a linear response. But if it jumps more than three times, that becomes like a much bigger response beyond triple the response then that's a nonlinear relationship. And you need to have models that can encode nonlinear relationships in them mathematically. And so neural networks are a way of building in um, cascade effects, which um, just mathematically will represent nonlinear relationships. It's not, it's not like, um, I mean, it, there's a lot more to it than that. But basically, it's, just, it's if you have a problem where you, you think things are mostly close to linear, you don't need neural networks to model them. But in, the, in, in a lot of world problems, you either don't know what the relationships are or you know that they're nonlinear. And that way you need to have some mechanism that can learn relationships that aren't linear. And so neural networks do a good job of that. The one downside of it is that they are very unstructured. So if you know something about the 
structure of your of your of your domain of the problem you're solving, it's difficult to add that information to a neural, neural net. So basically, a neural network is discovering everything from scratch and learning everything, even things that you know. And so a human being can prime a statistical model with what we call prior, like prior knowledge of the relationships so that you don't need as much data to train them. But with a neural network, it's kind of free to discover any relationship it wants. So it might come up with mistaken relationships that you don't want it to come up with. And in a neural network environment, it's hard to steer the model to encode the human knowledge that you have as a prior. Now, I've had a couple conversations with, you know, AI and ML startups uh, over the years. And it's my understanding as well that one of the limitations with some of this stuff is if it starts getting trained or learning the wrong direction, uh, getting it to, un, uh, to uncheck its course and maybe change it. Is that still a thing? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, and that's why you, know, you can you, you can retrain models over time. Um, you know, downweighting historical data and upweighting new data. So, you know, you, you, in fact, there are, there are now companies, there are startups um, forming up that are specifically designed to track the drift in data so that you can see whether your model that worked really well on data a few months ago is still lining up well with the data that, that exists today or whether, whether the data is drifting or the model is drifting in, in these wrong directions. So it's definitely a, a, a significant problem if you're deploying statistical models in the real world solving you know, mission critical problems, you've got to have tools that track uh, the drift in your models and the drift in your data to make sure you don't get, end up in one of those situations. Once again, with me today, David Mogerman, and he is the managing partner and CTO at Differential Ventures. Go to differential.vc to learn more. And that's what I want to talk about next. So uh, you're fun. You, 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 at differential.vc, you talk about, uh, well, the banner says straight up, a seed stage fund founded by data scientists and entrepreneurs for data focused entrepreneurs. So what's the, when, with the fund, um, let's talk about that for a minute. What, what you're looking for, what you've done in the past and like what you, you know, like what you see the future for the fund doing. Yeah. So, I mean, we're focused on using my experience as a data scientist and my partner's experience as an entrepreneur and a sales and marketing guru to, help guide early stage startups into the next level to get to the series A, series B round and hand them off to, you know, the, the larger VCs to help them get to the next level. But for us, we're trying to use our experience to um, keep the founders from making the kinds of mistakes we've made in our careers. Um, when it comes to data science, um, you know, understanding the limitations of your data, understanding the limitations of your models and making sure that what you're trying to do with your models is actually legal ethical and consistent with the growth of your company. Um, a lot of times we find companies that are doing things like scraping data from the internet against uh, uh, their you know, fair use policies. They're um, using data in ways which would certainly irritate their customers and other users if um, it went to scale. And things that are like, you know, kind of tolerated by data providers at the small scale, but if you, if you scale up, then you know, they're not going to tolerate it. And I always tell founders to like plan for success. Assume that you're going to be successful beyond your wildest imagination. And imagine if your business practices are going to stand the, the scrutiny of the light of day. And a lot of times companies' plans don't. And, you know, we can't invest in a company unless it can scale to become, you know, a hugely successful company that's going to have all the regulatory scrutiny on it that you'd expect. So we, we try to like guide them to do things in a right way 
even if it's legal what they're doing, you know, legality is important, but it's not the only barometer of, of what's what's allowed. And if the market won't won't sustain certain behaviors, even if the law does, you know, we have to get people to have a plan of how they're going to grow their company to stay within the bounds of what users find acceptable. You know, you, you hit kind of a, a trigger point for me there. I talked to a lot of people that are, you know, a lot of people that are running startups that are well-funded, they have traction and they're seem like they're in the business of preventing the sky from falling. And I'd say, what are you going to do if everything goes well? <laughs> what are you right. going to do if everything goes well? Are you prepared for that too? Cause you know, we're sitting there trying to prop things up and hold them up all the time. And, you know, and that's a reality as an entrepreneur is, you know, you, you, you do have to avoid a falling sky or, or consider it, but what happens if everything goes well, people, are you ready for that too? Cause you can ha- find an equal amount of failure from, from that side of it. You know, I kind of, I don't want to say failure. I mean, I ran into the same thing. My, my company full scale, you know, we're over 300, 300 plus employees four years later. And, you know, some of that stuff is sometimes you got to, we have known times in our past timeline where we're like, Hey, we got to just slow this down a little bit. Mm-hmm. We're not going to bring in any new clients yet. We got to get some, we don't want to, we, the ball of rubber bands is big enough right now. Let's, let's take a few rubber bands off of that. And, you know, uh, yeah, I want to talk about the use of AI and ML within software startups. So, you know, it was before the pandemic, we went out to TechCrunch and had some people on the podcast and visited some clients and went to the show. And by the time we, the first day had left, our joke was our, our machine learning model will. And it was like every, it was like 90% of the companies we talked there had that line in their, yeah. in their pitch. And we left, I mentioned that being kind of a joke because, you know, some of these things never will need a machine learning model. They are never going to need AI. It's just not a real thing. But yet that seemed to be the buzzword and the, and the, and the hype that everyone wanted to use to power their rocket ship to the moon. So at what point do you realize as a business that you may or may not, as a software business, or I guess a business in general, that you may or may not benefit from, you know, use of AI and ML in your platform? Yeah, it's a lot like blockchain. You know, there's a point in time where like every company that was pitched to us was using blockchain, even though it wasn't. It's just your blockchain was somewhere in the pitch. Um, And the biggest question I'd ask is why, what can you do instead of blockchain? And why aren't you doing that instead? Um, but when it comes to, you know, machine learning, it, it became a big buzzword and data science and AI. But fundamentally, there's this really important fact, which is that we have a big, one of the biggest assets most businesses have today that they're underutilizing is data. Companies have proprietary data that no one else in the world has. And that could be an advantage. It could be an advantage in a lot of different ways. And it might not be, but, you know, it, it's something that needs to be explored. And so you know, a good company will look at what data is being underutilized by companies. What problems could that data help those companies make better decisions about? And can they build software systems that can use a combination of traditional software development techniques and data-driven machine learning-based models to combine their efforts to solve the problem better? Um, It's rare that there's a problem that's, that's not being addressed at all. So to say that you have to start from scratch and only use data science, is probably the wrong place to start. But if you take a problem that's being being solved poorly, like um, you know, uh, project management is one which is being solved 
every industry has project management software or not, but they, 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 they have managed projects. And typically the, the impression is those project management software systems are uh, underperforming. They're poor, they're hard to use, they're, um, they, they miss things, they don't send the proper alerts. And so if those systems generate an enormous amount of data, which is ignored. There's logs of what's going on in projects, there's deadlines that are being passed, there's historical behavior by different employees about how well they're doing on, on, on finishing projects and what a warning sign is for that they're not gonna finish the project on time. And so you can take existing project management systems and then throw data-driven models that will look at historical data that's being produced by those models, by those systems, and try to predict when managers should be concerned about the successful completion of a project, which might cost the company money if it doesn't get finished on time. And so that's, a, that's an area where you, you can take a, a problem that's being tra solved traditionally, you have underutilized data, and you can build systems that can harness that data to solve the problem better. Um, so I think that's the, the, and I wouldn't call that an AI solution because the fundamental backbone of that solution is software. It's just a, a, a system which is enhanced in its performance by certain AI driven tools, which are going to make the system better. And I think whether, whether someone's pitching you an AI solution or not, almost all the, in all cases, that's what it is. It's a traditional software system with a layer of AI or data-driven component to it that's hoping to take the parts of the system that are working most poorly and trying to make them work better. The key point there is creating data or insights that are actionable though. Exactly, and, and you need to know, and actionable in ways which can actually do better than the traditional systems are. Because if you predict something that are, is already being predicted well by your system, those models aren't valuable. They just become more a, a source of complexity. Well, well, meaning you know, and to, I, I, and by the way, for those of you that that have approached me personally and asked me what the hardest part about being a host on Startup Hustle is, it's sometimes keeping up with a Stanford PhD that specializes in AI and ML. So I try to unpack these things. If you don't get everything he's saying, don't feel alone. We're not. You're not alone. Uh, but yeah, but the the key thing here is is. I mean, looking back at your data from the past and being like, hey, these three things happen and we lose a client or a user. Who cares? Like your goal needs to be to get out in front of that and be able to recognize when two of those three things have occurred and saying, okay, this is when we need to, we need to take action. We need to do whatever it is that we do and, and, and intervene. Right. Or, or, or change a course or do something. Because if you're just looking at it from a historical point of view, who freaking cares? Well, so Who cares? A company, yeah. a company that we invested in called Paradive, which is showing why you should care. What, what was the name again? Let's give them a shout out. It's called Paradive. Okay. And so Paradive has, has a software system they're developing, which will look back and see what events happen to your, to your customers that are precursors to them either churning or reducing their services or not deciding not to buy something or misusing your platform in some way. So if you can find the triggers that are typically associated with negative uh, customer satisfaction, then in the future, when you see those combinations of things happening, you can trigger an alert to have a customer service representative reach out to that customer and try to address their problem before they churn, before they decide not to buy a product, before they, they, they get, get themselves in trouble by misusing the product. So there are ways in which data, data analysis, historical data analysis, can produce 
insights which are actionable. But that's the key point. It's a, it's a great observation you made is that these things have to be actionable. Just because you're building a model that predicts things accurately, if the predictions don't lead to something valuable as an outcome, um, you know, if you, if you have a model that like predicts which stocks to buy and you have another model which predicts it better but tells you to buy the same stocks, those two systems are not going to um, give an appreciable difference to your overall performance as a fund manager. So you know, the idea is you have to have actionable insights from your models that cause you to do better actions and different things which make your business better. And that's what we're, we're investing in companies that are finding ways to do that. Yeah, and that's not an easy task, people. Once again, this episode of Startup Hustle was sponsored by our friends over at EquipBid Auctions. Join, sell, earn. It's that easy at EquipBid Auctions. Become an affiliate and start to grow your independent businesses by visiting equip-bid.me forward slash startup today. Even easier, head over to the startuphustle.xyz site and click on our partners page. You can also suggest future guests or even yourself as a guest. That's okay. We'll accept that too. But if you are wondering how you become a guest on the show, it all starts there. That's the top of the funnel for us. You can also see the Equip uh, Bid founder, Andy, and uh, has everything set up for you to go make money. So go build your business within a business. All right. So here we are at the end of, of of a insightful and complex episode. And thank you for that. I, I like to, you know, I'm starting, I'm starting my week out with a challenge. Um, fortunately I'm, I'm going to go to the Virgin islands in a couple of days and I might forget everything that we talked about here, but I'm okay with that too. Okay. So, yeah, this, this has been interesting cause I don't get a chance to talk to people. There's, I've had a lot of conversations with people that are newer in the space, but you know, having seen all these different changing things over, over time has, has been really interesting. Now, you know, I think as we, you know, come to an end of the show. I mean, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs that are looking to break into the data science or, you know, machine intelligence startup space? Yeah. I mean, I would say that the important thing, most important thing is to have some unique knowledge for yourself that gives you an advantage to help solve a problem that other people don't know how to solve. You know, that if you're going into a space that, you know, if you're going into a space that everyone else is working on, and you're just going in there because you think it's interesting, but you don't have any any kind of experience that gives you an advantage. You really, you know, you know, fighting an uphill battle. You know that the AI is an, is a known entity now. It's not like a surprise like 30 years ago when people didn't know the power of it. Data science is a is a well understood, uh, useful tool. And you know the question is what what new problems that AI is not solving that you know a lot about? Can you figure out a way to adapt? Soft, AI software systems, machine learning, data science to add value to an industry that's not currently benefiting from it. And I think if you find there's a lot of greenfield out there, a lot of opportunities in spaces that are underserved by data science and AI. And if you have an expertise in those areas or you can develop an expertise in those areas, I think that's a great direction to go in because um, you, know, you want to broaden the ways in which data science is being useful, not concentrate in the most focused areas. I think you you hit on a, a key point there. And when I'm listening to you talk about going into a field or an area where everyone is, what I'm hearing is you're way behind from the beginning. Like people have already, they're already way ahead. You're not, it's easy to think in those cases that you're ahead and you're not even on the lead lap. 
Mm-hmm. You're like, yeah, I'm winning. You're like five laps behind. Now, I think the easy way to look at any kind of software startup, and if you want to attract, you know, obviously the goal is to generate revenue, like not just do science. Like there's other avenues you can pursue, like academia, where that might be the case. But figure out how to how to help a business sell more or spend less, or maybe both. And yeah. you are onto something. I mean, that is the that is the crux of what so much of software and software entrepreneurship revolves around. So, like you talk about actionable data, you know, seeing things in the space that help people understand, you know, when a customer or a client is going to churn, or maybe why someone's not buying something. Um, you know, seeing things in the space. You know, I, I work in the in the field of staffing and recruiting technically at full scale. You can go to fullscale.io to learn more where, where we have 300 software developers, most of which have no experience with machine learning and AI because there's not a lot of people that out that have that out there. And, you know, one last thing on the way out, like, and, you know, I'm not saying, you know, we help people build some really complex stuff at full scale. And like I said, that's at AI and ML aren't, aren't the, aren't the things that I find people with a ton of experience with. How do you, if you have, if you're an early stage founder, how do you even find, do you have to create your own, your own people with experience? Cause I feel like you might need to. Well, I mean, there are a lot of people graduating from colleges and graduate programs with these skills, looking to get into startups. Um, there's, uh, I mean, it's actually, it's the labor force is kind of strained right now, although with, with layoffs at big tech companies, uh, the market will probably be be, be, be a little easier to find uh, talent. Um, I'm not sure they're letting go of developers, though. If you look at it, like, I mean, I don't see a lot of developers coming out of these layoffs. It's mainly like sales and marketing type Meta, people. Meta just laid off 11,000 people. I'm sure there were a chunk of yeah, the, VR yeah. focused uh, uh, guys yeah. that probably do a lot of AI um, and ML. But, um, you know, you, you really need to find the right balance. I um, mean, you know, there, there are some open source and off the shelf tools that do AI, but you really need to hire someone who's got hands on experience with data science if you're going to build a product that has data science as a major component of it. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not commoditized yet. It's still um, something that is brittle and can, can fail if misused. So you really want to find someone with experience. And I think it's important to have balance, especially in a founding team, where if you're a very deeply te- technical founder, you want to find a co-founder who's business, got business savvy. And if you're a business-focused founder, you want to find a co-founder who's got some deep technology background. Because the best founding teams we found are the ones that have good balance in those two areas. You, the rest you can fill in in terms of sales and marketing and you know HR and different things. But if you don't, if you have too much focus on technology, you're going to have trouble building a product. And if you have too much focus on product, you're going to have trouble you know building the right technology. So you need kind of find balance in both areas. Listen to what he just said, people. It's a key thing. Eventually, you have to eventually you have to stop and sell something. Um, too many people are product, 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 product. And then next thing you know, it's about being broke, broke, broke. Cause you gotta, yeah, my, 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 uh, co-founder at full scale, uh, handles more of the technical details on many days. I'm the one that looks at it and says, I don't think we're ever going to make any money doing this. And, and then, and, and then it becomes a hobby. Yeah. You're both, it, yeah. you can't, you can't have one without the other. Yeah, if you're not going to generate revenue or, or sell something eventually, then that sounds like a hobby, many times an expensive hobby. Yep. Once again, folks, David Magerman, 
managing partner and CTO at Differential Ventures. There's a link in the show notes if you want to learn more about his fund or reach out to them. David, thank you so much for joining me and challenging me uh, on, a, on a fun and interesting topic. My pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.